me thank Bill and Stacy for doing that. I know that was not easy for, for them. Uh, it's never easy when you get a camera stuck in your face and you're asked a bunch of questions, but thank you for sharing from your heart uh, what the Lord's doing in your lives and what He's doing in your family. And, and all of us are on a journey with Christ, and it takes different forms, but as a church, we're on a journey with Him as well. And so the, we've been talking for a few weeks now, uh, just on the concept of New Day, this capital campaign that's going to be used to fund our renovation and construction projects as we go forward in the next few years. And uh, I understand this has been perhaps some heavy, heavy weeks for us. And so uh, I want to lighten the mood as we get started. If I could, I heard about a church board that was really beginning to wrestle and be becoming concerned about the people in their congregation and how they were embarrassed when the offering plates were being passed. And so the board decided that they needed to kind of rethink this and come up with a new system that wouldn't embarrass anyone, especially those who, quote-unquote, couldn't give during the offering. And so they asked the pastor, which is usually what happens. The board comes up with a decision and says, here, you go do it, make it happen. And so they asked the pastor to design a way of handling it so that people could easily give as they come in and as they went out on Sundays. And so the pastor uh, took some time, thought it through, and came up with a plan. He built several interesting boxes and put them at each of the doors. Uh, these boxes were very unique. In fact, they were so, ni- so unique that if you dropped in a dollar or more, it would make no noise. Everything was silent. If you gave a half dollar, a little bell dinged. If you gave a quarter, it blew a whistle. If you gave a dime, a siren went off. If you gave a nickel, a shot sounded. Can you imagine that? If you gave nothing, a little camera came out and shot your picture. And so this morning as you exit, I want you to just make sure that you look at all of our new boxes that we've installed in the worship center. I'm just kidding. Maybe. That really has been uh, some heavy lifting the last few weeks, and I understand that. It's, it's heavy lifting for me as well. And In fact, there's very few Sundays that I uh, am not really excited to preach. But this morning, I just woke up this morning thinking, oh, it's Sunday, isn't it? i got to go preach on stewardship again. Because I understand. I understand where we're at. I understand the heaviness. I understand the, the crisis of faith for all of us. It doesn't matter if you've got a, a, a million dollars in the bank or you've got one dollar in the, in the bank. It's, it's heavy lifting for us. And so I want to try to lighten the mood, if I could, this morning as we get started. And I came across something else I thought was funny this week. And it was printed in a church bulletin uh, some years back. And here's what it said. I hope you'll get a laugh out of this. The Lord loveth a cheerful giver. He also accepteth from a grouch. I don't know about you, but I find that very funny. And, and so if you're the cheerful giver this morning, the Lord is rejoicing in you. If you're a, a grouch but you're giving, the Lord is rejoicing in your obedience. And so uh, uh, let's have some fun this morning, if we could, from the Word of God. But at the same time, let's have our hearts opened and, and, and open to the challenge and the stretching that God wants to do in our life. That's really what this is about. I've made this statement many times over the last few weeks. I really believe what we're doing here is so much more and so greater than bricks and mortar. So much greater than a construction project or a renovation of various spaces. It's so much greater than any of that. It's really about you and I learning to grow in our faith. Learning and allowing ourselves to be stretched, to be developed, to be molded into what Jesus would have us to be. And that is a picture of himself, a faithful, selfless picture of himself. And so as we tackle this subject of giving or biblical stewardship, as we probably should call it, 
when we think about it, we need to understand that this is not just something that we do to, to fundraise. It's not something we do to pay for things. Biblical stewardship is about discipleship. Did you hear what I just said there? Biblical stewardship, you giving uh, 10%, your tithe each and every week, each and every month, each and every year, that's about discipleship. It's about you being faithful with what God has given you so that you can continue to grow in the way God wants you to give and serve in the way God wants you to serve and be a part of all the things that he wants to do in your life and through your life. Thus, it's the same for us as a church. And so you may not like to hear about biblical stewardship, but in many ways, stewardship is a thermometer of your spiritual health. I really don't believe you can grow beyond your biblical stewardship. You can't have that divorce from the other aspects of your, of your Christian life. You can't say, I'm going to be disobedient in this area. I'm going to be closed off in this area, but I'm going to allow God to grow me in these other areas. No, it's, it's all or nothing. We've got to grow in our giving as we grow in the other areas of our life. And you say, how can you say that, Pastor? It's because I believe this is a true statement. Look at the screen. You're never more like Jesus than when you're giving. You're never more like Jesus than when you're giving. Now, this is not a statement original with me. There's probably nothing in that I ever say that's original. I heard this from my mentor many, many years ago from Johnny Hunt. You're never more like Jesus than when you're giving. And when I look at Johnny Hunt's life, I see a man who's a giver because he serves a Jesus who's a giver. You see, this statement is just not based off some man or some woman's perspective on life. It's based in the teaching of the Word of God of who God Himself is. You see, the responsibility of being a faithful steward of God is the constant obligation of what it means to be a Christian. It's the weekly, the monthly, the yearly responsibility of us giving our tithes and offerings to the Lord as our act of worship to Him to support His kingdom and what He's doing. All of that is this ongoing perpetual spiritual discipline that's to be played out in our life. But there are times, think about it, in addition to the routine monotony stewardship that we're to be a part of, there are times in the life of God's people when the Lord would lead us to do something extraordinary, this new effort to fund and to, to make possible what God wants to do in our life, the life of our church, and through our ministries. That's where we're at today. Those are the exciting days that we're in this, at this point in our history. You see, we're mounting up a great and extraordinary campaign. It's designed to raise the needed resources needed for this calling of God upon our lives and upon our church to place, to, to develop a, a, a ministry and a church that's going to continue to reach people for His glory. And so in seeking the wisdom of God, what we've done is we've devoted several messages to the great stewardship campaigns of Scripture. So far, we've looked at three of them. There are four in all. We've looked at the first three, that is the special stewardship there to fund the, the building of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. We looked in 1 Chronicles 29 to where David funded and, and called the people of God to fund the building of the temple that Solomon later on built. Then we looked at last week how when they came back from exile, Ezra and Haggai and others led the people of God to make necessary cuts in their life to sacrifice so that the temple could be rebuilt after their exile in bondage. So today we're going to look at a fourth major stewardship campaign that we find in Scripture. 
You'll see it referred to in Romans chapter 15. It's mentioned again in 1 Corinthians 16. And as we're going to see this morning, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, it spoke to extensively. So we've been studying these passages here in our small groups over the last few Sundays. And so I hope that if you've been to small group, you understand the background of what is taking place here. So I'm not going to bore you with all of the details, but I do want to summarize what's going on here, the basics of what's going on here and what Paul is addressing. Well, the Apostle Paul, as we know, is the great missionary. He's a great church planner. He's the great theologian. And history tells us, the Bible tells us, that he made three what we call missionary journeys during his adult life and his ministry. The third missionary journey is recorded in Acts chapter 18, verses 23 through chapter 21, verse 16. And Paul had two major purposes for this missionary journey, this endeavor to go back and to preach the gospel and travel from city to city. First of all, he wanted to continue to plant the gospel and to edify those churches that had been planted in Asia Minor as well as in southern Europe. The second purpose of his endeavor was he sought to raise a large amount of money for from these churches for a special project that was near and dear to his heart, something God had placed upon his heart and his life back in Israel. You see, back in Judea, the Jewish Christians had really fallen on hard times. They were destitute. They had been pummeled by famine as well as persecution. It was not popular to be a follower of Jesus in the, in the land of Judea during that period. Paul knew that there is a great need for a large infusion of cash. There's just moments in our life when we need an infusion of money, right? Money, some would say it's evil. The Bible never calls it evil. It says the love of money is the beginning of all evil. But there is good use to money. That's why the Lord gives it to us. And so these believers back in Judea needed some money. Furthermore, Paul understood that if the Greek and Gentile churches of Europe would meet this need, it would help bridge the rift that was getting wider and wider between the Jewish church of Judea and the Greek church in the Gentile world. And so during this missionary tour, Paul mounted a special one-of-a-kind effort to raise this large sum of money so the financing could take place to meet the needs of those back in Judea. Today, I'm not going to reteach the lessons that we've been looking over the last several Sundays, but I do want to tell you the truth about giving. I want to speak to you this morning on this subject, the truth about giving, because there are a lot of misconceptions about giving in the church. Also, and I'm not going to address all the misconceptions. We'd be here all day, but I do want to share with you five truths about giving laid out here by the Apostle Paul as he speaks to the believers there in Corinth that we're going to see here in chapter 8. First of all, the Bible tells us that giving is nothing less than the act of grace, than an act of grace. Giving is an act of grace. As Paul opens up here in the first verse in this eighth chapter, he is going to use the word grace in what was probably going to be seen as a very unusual way. Now we should, if you've been in church long enough, you should understand that grace is a powerful word, right? Grace is one of those words in the Bible that we reach out and we grab hold of. We sing about it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We understand that grace is, is God's movement toward us. That he's giving us something that we do not deserve. 
But here in verse 1, Paul's going to use grace as a kind of synonym for the act of financial giving. Look there in verse 1. Paul says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, who are these Macedonian churches? Well, they were congregations. Uh, If you're familiar with your biblical maps, if you ever flip back to the back part of your Bible, you're familiar with where Macedonia is located. And so those churches are in the northern Greece area. And they had given a sacrificial offering toward this campaign that Paul is leading. Paul wanted to use their example here to motivate the Corinthian believers that he's writing to. Oftentimes, this is what we will do. That's what biblical people would do is they will tell the story of what someone else is doing in a way to encourage others to join in what they're doing. We've already done this this past Monday night in our New Day banquet. Many of you were there. We had great attendance. It was just a wonderful time. Good food, good inspirational message. And we shared in that in that time that already up till this past Monday, seven families had pre-committed $125,000 to our campaign. Why do we share that? We share that so that you can see, hey, there's some buy-in here. Hey, there's some people who are on board. And so maybe I need to get on board. Maybe I'm wrestling with this a little bit. Maybe I'm going to look at this and say, if they can give that much, perhaps I can raise mine up to what it needs to be because others are doing it. So Paul's sharing this as an example to spur and to prod other people on in their own hearts to join in. Skip down to verse 6. He says, accordingly, we urge Titus that as, he, that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Here this refers to the financial gift Paul was expecting the Corinthians, the Christians of Corinth, or the Christians from Corinth. So we refer to their anticipated gift as this act of grace. He goes on to say in verse 7, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, or perhaps better translated, maybe translated in your Bible, in your love for us, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So three times we've already seen Paul speaking of financial giving as an act of grace. Verse 9, he tells us that giving is this act of grace that mirrors the grace of God himself. He says there, for you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now what's Paul saying here? Why is he using Jesus and his, him coming to the earth as an example? Well, in other words, what he's doing is, is he's teaching us something about what God has done for us. Giving, in other words, is the result of God's work of grace in our lives. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God himself, comes to the earth, strips himself of glory, puts on humanity, becomes impoverished so that we might become spiritually wealthy. That's the, the image here. And so the result of God's work is the grace of God in our lives. It changes us into the image of Christ. Here's something we need to understand and be reminded of today. By nature, you and I are not givers. By nature, in our humanity, in our flesh, we are not givers. We could go down, if you don't believe me, we could go down to the nursery right now. We can hang out with the little babies and hang out with the toddlers. And we could probably go to the older kids and see much of the same thing. But what happens when kids get together and one's got a toy and the other doesn't have a toy? 
There's a fist fight. There's wrestling. There's nunchucks that come out. Uh, there's all kinds of things that happen. Why? Because kids don't naturally know how to share. Kids naturally know how to take. That's mine. One of the first words you learned as a kid, one of the first words your kids ever learned was this. It's mine, right? No, little Johnny, you got to share. It's mine. I don't want to share. And then they break down into tantrum and all kinds of things. Why? It's because by nature we're not givers. No, by nature we are sinful. By nature we are selfish. By nature we are self-centered and stingy. Spending and consuming come easily to us. I mean, it's amazing. You walk through the store with a little kid or anybody that's unregenerate or not walking with Jesus, and the natural tendency is, I want, I want, I want, I want. But the Christian who's growing in their face says, I want to give, I want to give, I want to give, I want to give. Why? It's because you're coming, becoming more and more like Jesus. You're never more like Jesus than when you are giving. That's why credit card companies work so hard with advertising, it's because they understand there's this natural tendency to want, 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 want. I was, I don't know why I shared this a few weeks ago, I think it was in our small groups, uh, talking about just money and things like that. I remember as an 18-year-old kid, I mean, I, I hadn't ever really had a job. I just did lawns and worked for people. I never had to actually get a check stub from a company until I went to college. And so immediately, I am pre-approved for a credit card. What's that all about? I don't have any credit, never bought anything on credit, and all of a sudden, I'm given a credit card with this, at, at that time, I thought, astronomical amount of credit line, and so it was the natural thing for me to do. Fill it up, right? I went out there, and I bought rods and reels, and, and hunting things, and gas for the boat, and all these different, why? It's because there's this natural tendency to want, 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 want. But as we grow in the grace of Jesus Christ, we want to become like Him, and Jesus is a giver. As we grow in our, in our salvation, we understand the value of sacrifice. We understand the value of self-denial. We begin to become concerned about the souls of men and women, and we can under, understand that giving is godlike. If you want to be like the Lord Jesus, be a giver. Our most familiar verse in all the Bible is John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. He gave of himself. Romans 5, 8 tells us that even while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. He gave of himself so that we might inherit his glory, his relationship. It amazes me when I'm around followers of Jesus who understand this. I've been to Africa many times. I've been to Uganda many times in particular. And I remember one of the first times, perhaps the first time I'd ever been to this orphanage. We always visited, Rodney and Mark and Ruthie. Uh, know about this village or this orphanage they've been there and so I remember the first time we rolled up and I was with a big team and and they rolled the red carpet out they have no red carpet by the way they just rolled it out for us though in the way they treated us they treated us like royalty here's an orphanage of 250 kids that literally have very little to nothing to feed the kids they have rudimentary facilities for schooling and housing these kids they have little food to give and yet they gave their absolute best to us why because they wanted to serve the Americans who'd come to bless them with the Word of God they wanted to give why because they understood the gospel of Jesus Christ some would say oh they only gave you that so that they could get something from you I beg to differ I've I know those brothers and sisters they gave because God has touched their heart Verse 2 adds another dimension to our view of stewardship. Here we learn giving does, does not depend on prosperity. 
It doesn't depend on prosperity. Again, referring to the churches of Macedonia, Paul continues by saying, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. And so what can we say about these churches here in Macedonia who've made this significant contribution to the Lord's work? Are they rich? No, not even close. Were they enjoying time of prosperity? No, that's not the right answer either. They were struggling. They were hurting. This was a difficult time for them. The Bible tells us here they were going through a severe trial, and yet they possessed overflowing joy. They were themselves living in poverty, and yet somehow this resulted in a richness of generosity that served as an example as well as a rebuke to the other churches. They begged Paul for an opportunity to participate. Paul, as you go down to these other churches, allow us to be a part. As you go back to Jerusalem, allow us to be a part of what you want to give and to bless these, our brothers and sisters back in Judea. Allow us to be a part of that. Some time ago, Willow Creek Community Church, you probably heard of it, large church in suburban Chicago had a stewardship campaign that they were in the middle of, campaign very much like ours except a whole lot bigger. They were seeking to raise $50 million, and it seemed impossible as you can imagine. Sometimes, I, I, some, I, I come from a megachurch, Kara comes from a megachurch, and so sometimes if you've never been a part of a megachurch, you have this mentality, they just have all the money in the world, they can do whatever they want, they can raise the funds, it's no big deal. It's no different in a megachurch versus a, a small church. It's all about faith, it's all about trusting God, it's about sacrifice, it's about giving, it's about uh, doing it without so that others can have doesn't matter what size church you're in. And so here is a large, large church, one of the largest churches in the country, seeking to raise $50 million. Seems like it's never going to happen. And then one day in a staff meeting, the story is told of how a young single lady on the staff shared her testimony. She shared how she was really struggling. God had spoken to her heart. She really believed that she had heard from God about what her gift was to be to the campaign, this three-year campaign they were doing. She looked at her finances, she looked at her assets, she had no assets, she's, she's young, she doesn't make a whole lot of money, and yet God had put this number in her heart, and, and she believed the number was what she was to give. So she shared this staff meeting how God had put in her heart a way to meet that request of him. She said, I just had the idea one day to take on a roommate. I had some extra room, had an extra bedroom, and so I decided I'm going to get a roommate. I'm going to invite another young lady to... to, to be a part of my apartment, and she's going to live here. She's going to pay rent. And for the next three years, I'm going to take every dime that's given to me for the rent of this room, and I'm going to give it to the campaign for our church. So her story began to encourage those on the staff. They began to tell that story to others, and it began to grow and, and, and increase, and people began to look at their own situation and say, you know what, God's put something in my heart. He's put a number there for me, and on paper it looks like I'm never going to be able to do it, but there's some other creative ways I can go about this, and maybe I need to take on a roommate or something. All in all, when it came down to the day to pledge for their church, instead of pledging the $50 million that was needed, they pledged over $80 million to the project that God was leading them to do. Doesn't that sound like the Macedonian churches? Paul says in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, their extreme poverty, it overflowed in a wealth of generosity. You see, giving is an act of grace that does not depend on prosperity. It depends, as we're going to see, 
on this third truth. Giving should not be limited by your ability. Giving is never uh, put up against what you can do. It should always be put up against what God can do. You sometimes I hear people say something like this. Pastor, I'll try to do such and such to the best of my ability. Wrong statement. God's not called you to serve. God's not called you to give. God's not called you to do anything in your own ability. He's called you to do everything in his ability, even your stewardship. And so this young lady that I shared from Willow Creek, she heard from God. She understood, this is what I'm to do. This is what I'm to give. She didn't know how it was going to happen on the front end. But she began to say, it's not my ability that's going to make this happen. Sure, there's some things I can do creatively, but it's all about the will of God, the power of God, and the sovereignty of God in this. It's his ability that's going to make it happen. So we don't operate on the basis of God's ability in any realm of our life. If you're teaching small group or Sunday school, as some of you still call it, and you're doing it in your own ability, stop. Do it in God's ability. One of the things I pray every Sunday leading up to Sunday is, God, I don't want to preach in my own power. I want to preach in your power. I want your anointing to rest upon me. I'll mess this thing up. I mean, there's been some times where I've felt like a disaster, and yet God has moved because it's been all about him. There's been other times I came, and I thought, man, that was the best message I ever preached in my life, and it was a disaster. Because I did it in my own power. Look what he says in verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. If you go over to chapter 9, look at verse 8. Paul says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Then verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. God doesn't call us here to give the best of our ability. He calls us to follow his leadership and to giving according to his ability. That's what he says here. It's the one who gives seed to the sower and bread for food. He's the one who's going to give you what you need. And so this morning, a question for us. How are we doing in America in this? How are we as Americans doing when it comes to biblical stewardship? Well, I can tell you, unfortunately, it's not very good. The discipline of regular tithing is quickly fading. According to a 2004 study that was conducted by the Barna Group, only 4% of Americans tithed or gave 10% to a local church. Fortunately, that same study revealed that of evangelicals, 23% were giving what we would call the tithe to a local church. But even 23% is well beyond, well below 50 or 100% where it should be. The study obviously is a little dated, but I've seen other research come out over the last few years, and and I can say that nothing really has changed. If anything, it's probably declined. We are in a state uh, in, in the life of our churches today that people give less and less and less. In fact, some studies have come out to say that somewhere between 15 to 20% of people who would say, I'm a born again follower of Jesus Christ, they give absolutely nothing to their church. They're simply takers, but they give nothing. Could that be said of people in our own church? So how are we as givers? We're not doing too good these days. See, these people are not even giving their best 
giving to the best of their own abilities because they're giving little to nothing. And yet the Bible tells us that the one who gives us seed and bread, the one who meets our needs daily, wants to give us all that we need so that we can be generous on every occasion. This brings us to the fourth truth about giving. Giving is something we get to do. I've had hard conversations over the last several weeks. That's why this morning I got up, I was like, I don't really want I don't really want to go preach on stewardship. I don't really want to face those conversations again with some folks this week. Because I believe in, in many of our hearts and minds, we have this thought that giving is, is an obligation. It's something I have to do. It's drudgery. It's like walking through mud. No one likes to walk through mud. See, if you have that perspective of giving, you have the wrong perspective. The Macedonians were begging Paul for an opportunity to participate. They understood it's not something they have to do. It's something they get to do. It's a big difference. You, if you were at our banquet this past Monday night, you heard Gary, Dr. Enfinger say this. We're, we're not talking about giving till it hurts. We're talking about giving till it feels good. See, it's taking that perspective and turning it upside down. Looking at it from a positive standpoint. Looking at it from the perspective of how is God going to use my resources and what he's given me to to fuel what he's doing here and there. It's the perspective that we have that makes the difference. John D. Rockefeller Jr. once said this. Think of giving not as a duty but as a privilege. You say, well, that dude was probably rich. It doesn't matter how much money you have, it's still hard to give it away. You got $3 to your name, somebody wants a third of it. Because they need it, it's hard. You've got 300 million in your, your pockets. You've got some big pockets, by the way. It's still hard to give 100 million away. It doesn't matter how much money you have. Paul says there in the last part of chapter 8, verse 3, he says, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. These churches in Macedonia were begging Paul to let them have the joy and the honor of financially participating in God's work. They viewed it as a privilege. They viewed it as a blessing. They viewed it as an incredible opportunity to get in on what God was doing. See, they, were, they believed in experiencing God before Henry Blackaby ever wrote Experiencing God. They saw where God was moving and they wanted to get involved, even if it cost them dearly. Perhaps even because it would cost them dearly. They wanted to get involved. They viewed it as a privilege, something they got to do. Let me give you a very hypothetical example. Suppose someone, someone who's completely infallible, completely trustworthy, came to you with a surefire offer saying, we're starting a new company. We've got contacts, we've got contracts, we've got customers already lined up, they're in place, ready to go. We need investors. We need people who come in and and invest $100 each. But they should know that this is the best investment in the history of business and commerce. So hypothetically, the best possible investment opportunity you could ever imagine has come your way. You've been asked to give $100 as an investment. They're guaranteed that those who invest $100 will be multimillionaires in just a matter of a few months. You in? I'm in. I'll just tell you right now, I'm in. That's a whole lot better than the lottery. Amen? No one's winning, by the way. It's funny, they keep talking about it in the news. But here's a surefire investment. Suppose you, suppose you knew this was a fail-safe, 
opportunity. It's truly an opportunity of lifetime. Would you waver or hesitate? Absolutely none of us would waver or hesitate. Would we begrudge the $100? No, I believe this is what we'd be doing. Can I sign up for $200? Can I put three? And Hey, if I get $1,000 together, I pull it maybe with some friends. Can we invest that money? No, we're all trying to get in this gig, right? Because it's surefire. It's absolutely 100% guaranteed. We're going to take $100 and turn it into something that's going to transform our lives and everyone around us. You say, how in the world does that matter? Or how does that match what we're doing here? It's because when we give to the kingdom work, we're investing things that outlast us. When you give to what God's doing in our church, through our church, it is something that is eternal in scope. It results in dividends that will outlast your life. I told you a few weeks ago about a friend of mine who I became friends with when I, uh, not long after I came to my previous church, and we both had just gone through knee surgery. So we struck up a conversation in the board or the table there as those women would prod and prod on our on our knees, and so we talked back and forth. And I remember sharing with you how, toward the end of his life, R.C. was so moved of God to be a part of what God was doing through our church. That he restructured his whole insurance, he restructured his will, and when he passed away, he never saw anything built, but he was able to provide three quarters of a million dollars to what God was leading us to do. Why? It's because he believed, and he wanted to see something outlast him. See, when we invest in the Lord's work, it extends the kingdom of God throughout the earth. It populates heaven for all of eternity. It results in dividends that will outlast, out live all of us even time itself jesus said matthew 6 lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust destroys or where thieves break in and steal thank you rick fred take you some water brother i'm glad somebody did that because i've been sitting here thinking if i had a bottle of water i'd walk down there with it and give it to him i've been in that situation Let me give you a fifth truth this morning. Giving reflects our personal commitment to God and to his church. Look at verse 5. He says in this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. They gave of themselves first to the Lord and then to us. Your giving reflects your personal commitment to the Lord and to his church. You're never more like Jesus than when you are giving. Jesus is a giver. So this morning, thinking about that, I want you to picture your check stubs, your bank statements. Picture them in the same way you would think of a barometer or a thermometer with the weather. It's an indicator. It's a reflection. It's a gauge of where you are, where I am spiritually. What's on your bank statement is what's on on the horizon of your life. In other words, it's the reason here the Macedonians gave to the Lord with such liberality and generosity. It was because their giving was predicated and it was preceded by this total life commitment to Christ and to the work of Christ among the nations. Let me illustrate this a little bit in a negative way. There was a man in Texas years ago whose son had been charged with murder. This man went out and he was going to do everything he possibly could to get his son free of those charges. He found and hired the best criminal attorney attorney in in Dallas to defend his son. The young man was acquitted not long after that because of the 
lawyer and his abilities. So when the lawyer came and presented his bill, which was very staggering, the father looked at it and with joy paid it because the lawyer had saved his son. Later in the year, that that boy was living a, a hard life and he came in contact with a faithful pastor and they began to talk about Jesus, about the gospel and this faithful pastor led this young man to Christ, saving him from a life of drunkenness and sin. In contrast to the lawyer, God didn't send him a bill, didn't send the father a bill. Neither did the preachers invoice him for his services. But the man, however, never seemed to recognize the importance of giving to the Lord simply an offer of thanksgiving. He gave vast sums to keep his son out of jail, but he had no contributions for those who kept his son out of hell. There was no commitment to God in his life, and that was reflected in his banking account. I wonder this morning, if you were to just step back from your life and you were to look at what God's done for you, What has he done for you? Are you in a relationship with him today? Well, if you are, the Bible tells you that you've been taken from the broad way that leads to destruction and you've been placed on the narrow road that leads to life. It means you've been brought from an eternal address that's full of damnation, a place where the devil and the demons are meant to, to spin. And you've been placed in a kingdom of heavenly blessings. You've been snatched from death to life. So does your heart belong to Jesus? Has he changed your life? Has he done great things in your life after coming to Christ? How's your giving? We don't give to his cause as though we're paying a bill or responding to an invoice, but we do give out of a heart of gratitude. We do give because we understand that Jesus changed my life and what I do and how I serve and how I use what God's given me to to reach the other people out there in my community and among the nations, they're going to be able to experience all that I've experienced. And so that's why I give. That's why the Macedonians give. And that's why we should all give as the Lord leads us. We've experienced his grace. And so from that grace, we freely give to the Lord, to his church, really through his church, Because we deeply love both. They were committed to the Lord and to the Lord's people. So as we seek God's face and we seek his will regarding our own personal obligations, as we give of our substance to his work here, we need to bear in mind these truths of Scripture. Giving is an act of grace. It's something God is doing through us. It depends, or it does not depend on our prosperity. It doesn't matter if you only have two nickels to rub together or if you've got a basket full of nickels. It's not about that. It's about God's abilities. So don't allow your giving to be limited by your abilities. Understand it's a privilege. It's something we get to do, and therefore it's a reflection of our personal commitment to Christ and the expansion of His church. And in all of that, remember, the Lord will supply your needs. He will bless our church and he will use our efforts for eternity. He said there in verse 9 of chapter 9, for, the, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you might become rich through his poverty. How's the Lord leading you through this campaign? Many of you have already made early commitments to New Day. Many of you will turn those in this morning. As I was thinking about this week, I I really am overwhelmed by God's grace in our church right now. It's been refreshing to hear so many great stories of how people are really looking through their finances. They're they're going through the fine-tooth comb. They're saying, all right, what what can we cut out? 
What can we sacrifice? What can we do without for three years? I want to make a sacrifice to the Lord. That's what they're saying. This is what I'm hearing. So I'm, I'm hearing those stories. I'm, I'm hearing about how people are saying, you know, I'm going to give this. Or I'm going to give that. They're rearranging budgets. They're cutting out excesses. They're making sacrifices. In fact, at this moment, hundreds of thousands of dollars have already been pledged in early commitments. And people are already beginning to, to give. For the last couple of weeks, they've been giving. Six weeks ahead of when we are scheduled to make our first offerings to New Day, which will be November 11th. So I can't wait to see what the final outcome will be. More than that, I can't wait to see how the sacrifices that God's people are making will result in the gospel being proclaimed here in Powhatan as this county continues to grow, as people continue to move here, and as they connect with our church, find a relationship in Jesus Christ, become discipled, and begin to be sent out to a lost world. I can't wait to see how we're getting to be a part of what God's doing, preparing us even on the front end for what awaits us in the future. How about you? You excited about it? I'm excited about it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, I'm so grateful this morning. We are grateful this morning that we serve a God who is a giver. God, if you were not a giver, none of us would be sitting here. None of us would have joy in our hearts. None of us would have uh, a relationship with God. None of us would have heaven awaiting us. God, we would be filled with anxiety. We'd be filled with fear. We would be filled with selfishness. We would be filled with sin. Because you are a giver, you took our place upon the cross. And our lives have been forever changed. God, now we simply want to be like Jesus. We want to give. We want to give of our finances. We want to give of our talents. God, we want to give of ourselves in service using your gifts that you've given us, the giftedness that we have to be a blessing to everyone that we come in contact with here in this church, in our community, Lord, even around the world for your glory. I pray, God, my prayer is this, is that the whole New Day campaign is not about brick and mortar. It's about us becoming more and more faithful. God, that we would get our eyes off ourselves and our things and what we want and what we like, and we would get our eyes upon Jesus, that we would see that the fields are white unto harvest, and God, we would do everything we possibly can to engage there. So Lord, do a great and deep and lasting work in our hearts. We love you this morning. God, my prayer this morning early today was this as we move into the time of invitation, as we have walked through the Word of God, that if there is a person who's lost, who's without a relationship with Jesus, that this morning would be the day of salvation for them. God, that's what it's all about. It's about seeing people saved. It's about seeing people grow in their salvation. So God, I pray for those who need Christ, that they would come, confess and repent of their sin and trust Jesus. Lord, I pray for believers to be strengthened in their faith, to be encouraged, to be edified, to be blessed this morning even as the Word of God has deeply challenged them. Help us to be open. God, as we move into a time of response, perhaps some need to come to the altar, perhaps some need to come and say, would you pray with me or ask someone else to pray with them. God, encourage us, help us to respond, help us to be obedient and faithful in all things. 
perhaps others have been visiting you for a while and say, I really need to join. It's time for me to get that process going. So God, I pray they would come this morning and we get that process going for them. God, I'm so thankful for what you're doing in us and what you're going to do through us as we move forward as your people, walking hand in hand, faithfully following you. Now lead us, Holy Spirit, as we respond in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet?